History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after-show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, episode 79, The Living Dead in Paris, between 1800 and 1900. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else you will encounter spoilers ahead. Or zombies. <laughs> also zombies. The really odd thing is, Paris is the name of my postman. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the brains to my brawn, it's Mr. Ryan Weir. That's right, I have an IQ of 1000. Don't specify the units and we will both agree. <laughs> and of course we're joined as ever by the dynamic despite death, the judge himself, it's Mr. Paul Dursley. Welcome. I was referring to you as the living dead there, uh, Mr. Dursley, I'm not sure if you caught that brilliant play on words. No, I didn't. I have been drinking nothing but wall water all week, and as a result, I've forgotten everything <laughs> about the last episode. So, Ryan, would you mind reminding us what happened in about 60 seconds? I can, but you need to avoid drinking seeping wall water. It's bad for your health. <laughs> I was thirsty. <laughs> when do you want me to do it, Pete? I'd like you to do it now. Okay, so in our Halloween special, we took a spooky stroll through 19th century Paris, the city of love and the living dead. We met Jules Cotard, a doctor who told us that dead people are walking around thinking they're alive. We crept through a vast network of catacombs, learning about the bone-chilling end of Philibert Asper, the unlucky fella who got lost in the tunnels and walked seven miles in pitch darkness with nothing but rats for company. And finally, we pulled back the curtain at the Grand Guignol Theatre, the infamous venue in Paris that produced a series of grisly plays that covered everything from eye-gouging, on-stage dissections, and the resurrection of corpses, all of which combined to prove positive that the living dead are alive and, well, dead in 19th century Paris. Spooky, spooky, spooky! Last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me, he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes, it's all come back to me now. I remember a fascinating journey through the life of the average zombie. It was a great episode, in my opinion. But what's my opinion worth? Nothing. I may as well be a zombie shambling through this episode. We're only here for the opinion of Mr. Paul Dursley. So, Paul, I know the living dead may not be your cup of tea, but what did you think of the episode? First impressions. Um, well... I always go into these Halloween ones because it's so bloody repetitive with the same uh, low expectations. <laughs> and actually, I do sort of hate to say it, but although my expectations were low, they were actually bettered. Wow! Ooh. The Crypt Keeper speaks! Reluctant praise from Dursley is the best praise, in my opinion. Love it. <laughs> yes, it is the best praise. But, Ryan, I have to say, before we go on, you uh, trailed in the last episode that you had so much to tell us that you would bring more to the verdict. So I wonder if you wanted to fill us in a bit more with some of the things we missed last time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I have got stacks of stuff. It, it turns out that there were numerous zombie stories from 19th century Paris. So, um, yes... I I had a, uh, a veritable smorgasbord of food to uh, to work through. Food? What's food got to do with it? Brain food. Brain food, yeah. <laughs> okay. Which leads me to a part that I did want to talk about and I had to cut out at the last minute. 
During the episode, we mentioned that trope of zombies being obsessed with brains, right? Absolutely, yes. I know nothing about zombies, so... Although I do know that you made a mistake by doing the garlic gag, and it's not zombies that are garlic, it's vampires. (laughs) I think that was a French gag, if anything. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, look, uh, the idea that zombies eat brains, that's a trope that was invented for cinema. In particular, the 1985 movie Return of the Living Dead is principally responsible for it. They feature zombies that literally cry out, brains. And uh, there's even one scene in the movie where a zombie itself explains that eating brains helps them alleviate the pain of being dead. Why do you eat people? Not people. Brains. Why? The pain. What about the pain? The pain of being dead. Eating brains, how does that make you feel? It makes the pain go away. I like a zombie that will articulate his woes. That's nice. (laughs) So rare, let's find a zombie like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird film. It's sort of half comic, half horror. It's very strange. But yeah, anyway, the point is that since that movie, zombies and eating brains have kind of become synonymous. So I did a section about brain eating in Paris. Now, there are reports which suggest that during the siege of Paris in 1870, there were several incidents of cannibalism, which involved people eating the brain brains of dead people but there wasn't really much detail on any of that I, d- I know they killed all the animals in the zoo in paris and ate them during the siege of paris yes in 1870 wow well there you go that makes total sense so yeah there were incidents of cannibalism and zoobalism zoobalism <laughs> uh, just eating meat or just eating uh, meat. Just yeah. Eating. yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what we do know is that the Parisians in the 1800s were eating brains, just not necessarily human brains. It wasn't popular. Those who ate brains of cows and sheep and pigs, they were often considered to be unsophisticated peasants because the offal meats like liver and kidney and brains, they were just seen to be the cheaper meats that could be bought by the less wealthy. But around the 1830s, that started to change, and a number of Parisian chefs started to include recipes for brains in their cookbooks. So there's one chef called Marie-Antoine Karim, and uh, he spent much of his career cooking for members of the aristocracy. He was described as the king of chefs and the chef of kings. And he published a series of recipes called L'Art de la Cuisine Française, the art of French cooking, which included instructions for cooking calf and lamb brains, something he described as and I quote, not a low food, but something quite the opposite, a delicacy to be savoured. His recipes included fricasseed brain, stewed brain, as well as brains cooked with brown butter sauce, which basically involves blanching the brains and then gently cooking them in butter. Jules Gouff, another Parisian chef, he's considered to be one of the greatest French chefs of the 19th century. He published his own cookbook in 1869, which had a recipe for brains cooked in a red wine sauce with onions, mushrooms and herbs. And in 1896, another chef called Auguste Escoffier, he published a cookbook with recipes which included pan-fried veal brains, which he suggested should be cooked with mild seasoning so as not to overwhelm the delicate organ meat. 
I think delicate organ meat is a phrase that pays there. <laughs> <laughs> Hannibal Lecter was quite partial to a bit of brain, wasn't he? Yeah, with a nice Chianti, I think. Oh, no, that was his liver with a Chianti, wasn't it? But Yeah, but wasn't, didn't he sort of eating somebody's brain as they were there? I think he made someone eat their own brain in one particularly nauseating scene that I recall. <laughs> yes. Yes, that was in one of the sequels. Poor old Ray Liotta had to sit there and eat his own brain cooked in front of him. Which is a, a splendid metaphor for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the brain itself feels no pain, Clarice, so if that concerns you. For example, Paul won't miss this little piece here, which is the uh, part of the prefrontal lobe, which they say is the seat of good manners. That smells great. <laughs> Now, it's funny you should say, Ryan, about the uh, 1985 movie where the brain-eating zombie was introduced, because I read a little bit about that, and one of the questions that was posited in the things I was looking at was, it was not a very popular movie, so how did this become the trope? about zombies that we know today yeah and they thought that actually the thing that really pushed it out there was the 1992 treehouse of horror episode from the simpsons really yeah yeah so where they have the brain-eating zombies they thought that actually it was possibly the simpsons that gave it that wide audience well that makes more sense doesn't it i think probably more people have seen that episode of the simpsons than have ever seen the movie that seems likely to me as well yes Apparently one of the first references to zombies in movies is in 1932, Mm -hmm. where there was a movie called White Zombie. And this is generally considered to be the first zombie film, and it featured Bela Lugosi, you may know from films such as Dracula. What did he play? He plays the bad guy who uses voodoo Uh. to his advantage. Uh, So what happens is a young... A couple arrives in Haiti where the man's got a job and he they discover basically the locals practicing voodoo and it being a film of 1932 it's not a very woke film as you can imagine and the local native population are kind of derided for being both superstitious but also really good at magic so it's it's a difficult paradox to retain you, you should, probably should be suspicious if you are being turned into the zombies by the magic of these people I think they're probably right to be suspicious <laughs> yeah I, I don't think it's a necessarily one to add to your Netflix list but it's an early reference of zombies, but it's the zombie of the sense of the person who's drained of their will rather than a dead person come to life again. Yeah, some sort of like brainless slave, you know, hypnotised type thing. Yeah, exactly, which is a, a kind of different category, I guess, of zombie, isn't it? Do you know how to make a white zombie? Vodka, no doubt. Uh, rum. Yeah, it's a cocktail, a white zombie. Well, it, it, it's got to be Bacardi type rum, surely, clear rum. White rum, gin, pisco and lime juice. What is Pisco? Now I want to know. Pisco is a South American, mainly Western South American, sort of Northern Chile, sour drink. Oh, Pisco sour. But there you go. White zombie. Yeah, it's a, it's it's one of those cocktails for people who don't like cocktails. We like cocktails, don't we, Pete? We do. <laughs> well, I do, but but most cocktails you try are just so sickly sweet. Ah. What would be the judge? The judge. <gasps> I think it would have to be a lot of bitters. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say it's a gin cocktail because I think he likes a gin. Come on, what are you having in your, co- in, in your judge cocktail, Paul? 
Uh, well, I think it would be a variant of a martini. I would just specify that it has to be muddled. And on the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Are you calling me muddled? <laughs> I'm on the dock today. <laughs> this is Ryan's episode, so I can say things like that. <laughs> oh, dear. What's next? Um, well, I, I'd like you to go back to your notes and give me the figures you gave for Paris. Ooh. What's what's the issue? The issue is the two figures you gave were for two different Parises. Oh, what, greater metropolitan area and the thingy area? Yeah, so you said Paris is only 47 square miles or whatever. Yeah. And then you say it has a population of 12 million. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. actually, Greater <laughs> Paris has a population of 12 million, but the centre of Paris only has a population of 2 million. And that's the bit that's 47 square miles. You fool. It was a Halloween trick. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> Perhaps you should have gone for a treat, Ryan. You're more likely to get an extra point from treats. You're going to get nothing for a trick, that's for certain. Now, I also did uh, the classic, what happens if you Google Paris zombies 19th century but one of the first things that i got was a kind of it was like a blog it wasn't a particularly super official website but it was basically a guy claiming that paris was an excellent place to endure a zombie apocalypse oh why well the thinking went like this although it has wide boulevards which were allegedly put in place to prevent massive another uh, french revolution yeah, the barricading it, it, that's only a few roads and actually there's lots of these side streets that are very amenable to being barricaded and they're very narrow and you can keep the the zombie horde off so the one being the tiny streets the second thing they said was the the cobblestones so back in the the days of the revolution and they would barricade with the cobblestones so they'd have wagons or they just literally build walls from these big cobblestones from the prison streets plus Hmm. you could use your cobblestones to drop onto the heads of the unruly zombies that are trying to clamber over your barricades so for those two reasons the cobblestones the barricadability of the narrow streets they said actually if you're going to be stuck in a zombie apocalypse paris is a pretty good place to be caught can i offer a third reason please do Okay, so get yourself to the Moulin Rouge, attach knives to the windmill blades, and then set it on full spin and just watch as the zombies get ripped apart. (laughs) The Moulin Mincemaker. (laughs) Okay, fourth option, wire up the Eiffel Tower and then just electrify the Eiffel Tower and then anything that tries to get near you just gets electrocuted. And then you're just stuck up a tower. How are you going to eat and drink and all of that? Yep. Okay. But anyway, do you have any sense of a city you'd like to be trapped in during the zombie apocalypse, Paul? Ah, uh, well, first of all, that it will never happen. That's what they said about COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you could say what happens if there was like a four minute warning and you were in a city. Yeah. yeah. Well, if there's a four minute warning in the city, I'd try and kill myself very quickly. <laughs> that is why there's not been a film made with the plot based on your plan for non survival <laughs> and immediate self extinguishing. <laughs> In a zombie apocalypse. But you, you would you wouldn't want to survive it, would you? Because especially if you're a weakling like me, you you sort of you'd be at the bottom of the food chain. I've read a lot of zombie literature and seen a lot of zombie media, and in almost all of them, there is the weak-willed chap who keeps himself secluded. He's the one who survives. He is, yeah, because he rises to the challenge. You've got more chance than you think, Paul. I won't, because I'll be dead. <laughs> What is a zombie, anyway? What is a zombie? Well, I don't don't know what it is. 
I, I, it's sort of not an area that I'm, I have any interest in at all. What do you think a zombie is then? Well, it's like a vampire, isn't it? No. Not really. Vampires are a bit more stylish. Imagine than you're walking through a graveyard and suddenly you see like the soil of a grave start to part and a hand come clawing up through it. The corpse resurrected to life. Well, first of all, that can't happen. So you keep telling yourself that. Yeah, that's what people say as they're walking through grave. This can't happen. Well, if it does, it's then a trick. Imagine them coming for you. You've got the biggest brains of all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. Okay, so talking of zombies, I did want to tell you about Charles Nodier, who lived in the 19th century, and he's considered to be the first author of a zombie tale in French literature. So Nodier moved to Paris in 1801. He lived there for 40 years, and he became quite famous at the time for his detailed accounts of the Parisian underworld. But his zombie story, called The Dead Man Revived, which was published in 1819, really sort of just put him on the map. Now, the story is set in a small German village, and it centres around a guy called Hermann, who one day unexpectedly dies. Now, after being dead for five days, his body's prepared for burial, but when a priest comes to visit the body, he's shocked to see that Herman has come back to life. Now, people in the village are hesitant to approach him at first because they think he might be a vampire, but eventually they realise that he's not a threat, he's just Herman back from the dead. <laughs> uh, but they do notice a difference in his behaviour. Previously, Herman had a cheerful disposition, he's always made cracking jokes, but now he's all morose and overly serious, and he's unable to recall much about his life before death. And so Herman just wanders around the village day and night, obsessively searching for something important, but unable to articulate exactly what it is that he's looking for. Now, eventually, Herman disappears completely. The villagers are left to just sort of wonder what happened to him. And there are some rumours saying that he was last seen heading towards the churchyard to continue his endless searching amongst the graves. And that's really where the story sort of ends. It's only a short story, um, and it's sort of left cryptically. The villagers are sort of unsure if Herman will ever be found, or if he's ever going to find what he was looking for, uh, or if he's just doomed to wander in a zombie-like existence for eternity, trapped between the world of the living and the dead. I am absolutely certain that that story is a metaphor for the world of work. <laughs> he emerges from college, a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to take on the world, and then he goes and he gets his first job, and then he loses all his zest, doesn't really know what's going on, just endures. Are you okay, Pete? Do you need to talk about something? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 are you talking from experience here? Yeah, don't tell my workplace that I think that. <laughs> All right, guys, you've probably heard the urban legend, right? The one about people who have been buried alive and later their coffins have been opened and there are scratch marks on the lid. Yes. You know, they've come back to life and they've tried to escape. Urban fact. The Victorians <laughs> were obsessed with it. They had like little bells in the coffins that could be rung if somebody had woken up. Well, this all comes from Paris in the 19th century. Oh. So, yeah, the victim in question is a woman called Madame Bobine. Now, she was a wealthy middle-aged woman who 
lived in Paris and died sometime in the 1850s, apparently due to some sort of stroke. Now, as per instructions left in her will, she was quickly buried. But two days later, a guard at the cemetery heard screams and banging coming from her grave. So the guard goes and gets a grave digger and quickly they dig out the coffin and they open it to find Madame Bobine still alive. Now, apparently she had awoken from a coma and she tried unsuccessfully to get out of the buried coffin. And apparently that's where the scratch marks come from. She was immediately taken to hospital, but sadly died shortly after, like a day or two later. Did she from what, doctors, <laughs> from what doctors said was shock, but was most likely a result of sustained lack of oxygen. So, yeah. Anyway, she was buried again. In the same coffin? Did they give a discount? <laughs> yeah, buried it deeper this time so they couldn't hear it. Um, <laughs> anyway, so she was buried again. And the event captures the public's imagination and everybody's sort of terrified now of being buried alive. And so coffin makers start to sell caskets with bells and whistles that could be used to alert people above ground if the corpse finds themselves waking in their grave. Uh, and it's said that Madame Bobine inspired the story, The Premature Burial by Edgar Allan Poe, which was the piece that I read from during the story on the Parisian catacombs. Anyway, yeah, today the phrase a la bobine is still used sometimes to describe a hurried burial. Is that also the origin of the phrase all the bells and whistles or did they come from somewhere else? Coffin with all the bells and whistles on it, yes. <laughs> so there you go. Nice. There is something very primal about that fear of being buried alive. You're so alone and so forgotten. Yes, just be cremated. That solves the problem. In a way, yes. <laughs> you don't want to wake up from that. <laughs> just a bunch of dust trying to get out of your urn. <laughs> oh, but it seems it's not dust. It has to go through a crusher afterwards. Well, that's even worse. That, yeah, that's less reassuring than perhaps you think, Paul. <laughs> what would you rather be, buried in a coffin or trapped in the catacombs? I think trapped in the catacombs because I heard there was a crate of booze in there. A bare minimum, I could have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing about that that you didn't put much think uh, is when they found him, he was only 15 yards from the entrance. So he was all, uh, so close to getting out. Yeah, well, presumably over those seven miles, he was he walked past entrances. But there are so many chambers and little antechambers and things within the catacombs that you just lose your mind and keep walking. In pitch darkness. There was something that I read that said that he may have actually found the exit, but because it was gated and locked, he wouldn't have been able to get out anyway because he didn't have the key. Mm. I also read that they found an empty bottle of alcohol next to him, but I'm not sure that was true, so I didn't include it. I like to think he had one. At least he had a final drink before the rats got him. I would like to say a huge thank you to the retired detective and uh, medical pathologist who helped me out in this episode. I mean, really, without their support, that story would have been much more dull <laughs> because there was there's only so many facts. And uh, to take their hypothetical analysis into account was fascinating. Well, I think that's worth extra points, Mr. Dursley. Reference for later. Sorry? I think that kind of effort is worth extra points. Uh, I think I heard you the first time. <laughs> so, 
Right, of course, there are many films about the zombie apocalypse, all very dramatic and uh, exciting. But I think what we've learned from the last few years is after the first few sightings of zombies, then actually zombies are everywhere and you see your grandmother be killed by a zombie. Uh, Then a large number of people start to say that there are no zombies. The zombies don't exist. That's not a thing. No one's taking their hammers out. And actually a whole group of people just say, no, you're imagining it. Zombies have been made up by the government to control you. Uh, And Mm. even though when you leave your house... (laughs) That's even more stupid than zombies. (laughs) You get murdered. You've seen your neighbour murdered by a zombie. There will still be a group of people insisting that zombies aren't real. That's, I think, what we've learned for a true zombie apocalypse. That is very true. But I tell you what, if you do want to see a 19th century Parisian zombie, you can still do that to this day. Tell me more. So if you go to Paris, you can visit Père Lachaise Cemetery. We spoke about that in the Halloween in Paris facts. Do you remember? It was the remember. most famous and most visited cemetery in the world. They're just celebrity corpses. <laughs> yeah, we said there was loads of celebrities buried there. But there is one particular grave, and that is the grave of Belgian-born poet and novelist Georges Raymond Constantin Rodenbach. Now, he lived in Paris and passed away on Christmas Day, 1898, aged just 43 years old. And when he died, a tomb was created for him by Belgian sculptor Albert Constant Desenfants. And uh, it is a particularly haunting tomb. And so what he designed was a standard, solid, rectangular, grey stone block. Uh, But what is remarkable about it is that at the front of the tomb, it's been created to look as though the top of it has been essentially blown open. And emerging from the hole within the tomb itself is a meticulously detailed bronze figure of George Rosenbach himself, (laughs) essentially scrabbling free, pushing up out of the grave. His upper body and arms and head, they're all visible. One hand is like grasping the edge of the tomb and the other hand is reaching up with a, a rose in it. It's got realistic folds in the clothing and you can see the strands of hair and stuff. So it really does look like him, even if it is green because of the bronze. (laughs) But um, yeah, over the years, legends have sort of arisen around the tomb of George Roddenbach. And some people say that the statue is a warning that the tomb should never be opened because they say that Roddenbach is still under there as a vampire and he's just (sighs) resting waiting to be awoken ah but it's really cool and i'm going to post pictures of it on our social media accounts at hhe podcast do go and check it out yeah i want to see this now i'm excited And so, we have come to the end of the line. It is time for Ryan you to step in the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Can I step in the coffin? Uh, Yes, step down into the grave. You might as well get it out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Judge Dursley, are you ready to pass judgment? Yes, I am, Peter. Okay, if the defendant can please peek over the edge of his grave. I'm peeking. Uh, Your Honour, as usual, we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on the factual content of the episode. Well, this is quite a difficult one because obviously on the supernatural side it doesn't exist so there are no facts uh, about that. But then a lot of the episode was actually to do with actual things that have happened sort of not quite living dead. So I think we've got a bit of licence there in what we mean by living dead. So I've lost my thought. And so for a 
factual content. What did you think? Yes, and, and so for the pseudo-factual content, I can't really judge because I have no idea what a zombie or a vampire or a living dead or a, an orc or a whatever it is. <laughs> it's brought orcs into it. That is... He's way off base, but carry on. <laughs> so, I will give you the benefit of the doubt. C+. And that's benefit of the doubt. It feels harsh, but let's move on rapidly onto the next category, which is, as ever, entertainment value. Did you enjoy yourself? Well, I enjoyed myself more than I was expecting. Yes. I do approach these repetitive Halloween ones with a sense of dread. <laughs> That's how you should approach them. Yeah, not a, not, not a fear, just a dread and uh. tediousness. And actually, your a couple of your sketches this time hit the mark, I thought. Ooh. So your grade, please? OK, I will be more positive on this. So I will give you a straight B. Promising. Promising. Ooh. Ryan's happy. Okay, and now the ever unknown, the ineffable, the Dursley Factor. What did you think of it, Paul? How did it tickle your fancy? Well, it didn't necessarily tickle my fancy, but as I said, it exceeded my expectations. Yes! So, I will give you a surprisingly good B-. minus. B-, minus. he's happy with that, he likes that, I'm very pleased. Now... Before the judge passes his ruling, you have an opportunity, Ryan, to enter a plea if you choose to do so. Would you like to make that plea? I would be foolish to say another word. I'm going to keep quiet and allow the episode to speak for itself. Very prudent. So, Your Honour, the defendant stands before you, crouched in his grave. Have you reached a verdict? Yes. So, if I may ask you respectfully, your ruling, please. Well, this episode was... One that I wasn't looking forward to, but I was pleasantly surprised. And so I think you can guess the result I'm going to give you for this one. I'm going to give you B minus. Oh, that's a good grade. Woohoo! Ryan is happy. Pleased with that, Ryan? Anything you'd like to comment? Yeah, I would like you to etch B minus onto my gravestone. <laughs> This here lies Ryan. He lived a B minus life. All right, well, that is our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we talked about on the show, or if you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us on the social media through the website, hhepodcast.com, or you can email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you want to, you can definitely do that by rating and reviewing the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Recommendations there really help bring the show to new listeners. And we want new listeners. Everyone wants new listeners. We do indeed. Now, if you are on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, or X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post any trivia tidbits, news, and photos. Pictures of creepy gravestones. Uh, of course, we'll be back next time with our next episode, which will be martial arts in the Philippines during the Chinese Civil War. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge, Paul Dursley. Thank you, Paul. Best regards. And that's it. 
I guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to And Paris-wise, Paul, are you a fan of the of the town, the city? Yes, I really like it. You know, I, I take the mickey, but, you know, Paris is a lovely city. It is, Paul. The issue they've got at the moment is getting rid of the bedbugs. Yes. Oh, yeah, bedbugs, they creep me out. That's the real horror. <laughs> but Paul will always have Paris, at least we can say that. If I had bedbugs, I would be the leaving bed. Give us a brains, Paul. Give us your best zombie. Brains? Yep, that's it. Perfect. (laughs) That was ideal. (laughs) That's the end, I know. That's going in right at the very end. Nice.